Welcome to Sane Society. I'm Chandler. And I'm Ben. This episode, we'll recover, we will cover the Freedom Summer murders. Uh, we did an episode early on on Emmett Till, which basically kind of kickstarted the social awareness of the um, plight the of the movement. Yeah, the, well, the plight of the African American community down in the South. And of course, that happened in Mississippi. Well, the Freedom Summer murders happened in. 1964, also in the state of Mississippi. So in that time frame between Emmett Till and what we're about ready to discuss, nothing changed in the South. Um, Mississippi is still lynching people, intimidation, keep them from voting, registering their vote. Shooting people in broad daylight. Yeah. So, but this, what we're about to discuss, finally pushed it over the edge. And as we will discuss, it took violence against white people for anything to really happen, which is unfortunate. It really is. But... Like they knew, like the civil yeah. rights leaders knew that, and they used it to their advantage. Yeah, and like bless those white people <laughs> for being like, you know what, we'll take the, you know what, we'll take the bullet for you. So on June twenty first, nineteen sixty four, three young men disappeared near the town of Philadelphia, Mississippi. They were James Cheney from Meridian, Mississippi, Arthur Goodman, and Michael Schwerner from New York City were murdered. The murders of Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner were also known as the Freedom Summer Murders, the Mississippi Civil Rights Workers. There was a movie loosely based upon the facts. It was called Mississippi Burning, which came out several which years ago. Which is not the same as Paris Burning. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ben and I were talking about this right. earlier, and I was like, oh, the documentary? He was like, no, it was a movie. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm thinking of Paris is Burning about the drag queens. <laughs> not the same. No. There might be a small difference in the plot line there. <sighs> so these murders took place in Neshoba County, Mississippi in June 1964 during the Civil Rights Movement. All three were associated with the Council of Federated Organizations, COFO, and its member organization, the Congress of Racial Equality, CORE. There's going to be a lot of acronyms, just so yes. buckle up. <laughs> they have been working with the Freedom Summer Campaign. Now, the Freedom Summer Campaign was also known as the Freedom Summer Project or the Mississippi Summer Project. It was a volunteer campaign in the United States launched in June 64 to, in an attempt to register as many African-American voters as possible in Mississippi. The project was also set up for dozens of freedom schools and freedom houses. Now, freedom schools were temporary um, alternative uh, free schools for African-American, um, mostly in the South. They were originally part of a na- nationwide effort during the Civil Rights Movement to organize African-Americans to achieve social, political, and economic equality in the United States. The most prominent example of freedom, uh, freedom schools was in Mississippi during the summer of 64. Since 1890 and through the turn of the century, southern states had systematically disenfranchised most black voters by discrimination in voter registration and voting. Blacks have been restricted from voting since 1890 when Mississippi had passed a new constitution supported by additional laws which effectively excluded most black Mississippians the registering to vote. The status quo had long been enforced by economic boycotts and violence. The Congress of Racial Equality Corps wanted to address this program by setting up freedom schools, the aforementioned, and start voting registration drives in the state. Freedom schools were established in order to educate, encourage, and register the disenfranchised black citizens. Core members James Cheney from Mississippi and Michael Schwerner from New York City intended to set up a freedom school 
for black people in Neshoba County to try to prepare them to pass the comprehensive and literacy tests required by the state in order to vote. Which, like, why do they even have to have testing? Well, it was all part of the Jim Crow laws. Yeah, it's all bullshit. They knew the black community was lower educated and wouldn't be able to pass the laws. Can you remember, a lot of these people were descendants of um, sharecroppers, and probably maybe some of them had their grandparents were former slaves at this point, point in time in history. The project was originated by the Council of Federated um, Organizations, a coalition of Mississippi branches of the four major civil rights organizations. The four civil rights organizations were the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, also referred to as SNCC. I refuse to call it SNCC. <laughs> it was eventually dissolved in 1970. Congress of Racial Equality Corps, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP, which is still, going, still existence today, very prominent. Southern Christian Leadership Conference is an African-American civil rights organization that's closely associated with the first president, Martin Luther King Jr. In the early 1960s, the state of Mississippi, is, as well as most of the American South, defied federal direction regarding racial integration. Recent Supreme Court rulings had upset the Mississippi establishment, and white Mississippian society responded with open hostility. White supremacists used tactics such as bombings, murders, vandalism, and intimidation in order to discourage black Mississippians and their supporters from the northern and western states. In 1961, freedom riders riders who challenged the segregation of interstate buses and related facilities were attacked on their route. In September 1962, the University of Mississippi riots had occurred in order to prevent James Meredith from enrolling at the school. The origins of Freedom Summer lay in 1961, when the Council of Council of Federated Organizations, COFO, was formed to increase black political participation in Mississippi. From the start, the project enjoyed funding from Northern Philanthropies. It also had the full backing of Attorney General Robert Kennedy, who hoped the new organization would divert student activists from direct action campaigns like lunch counter sit-ins and freedom rides, which elicited violent backlash and caused considerable embarrassment for federal authorities. Which is... Which is interesting because a lot of people think civil rights and they automatically associate the Kennedys, but Robert Kennedy was pretty non-confrontational. Um, he was also a politician too. Don't be wrong. He, mm. he did some good things. And he is one of those that I think that if he would have lived, like our world would be different. Right. 100%. He would have been elected instead of Nixon. Absolutely. But at the, the climate at the time is like, okay, you know what's wrong morally, but at the same time, you don't want to upset the status quo. Well, and it doesn't affect yeah. him. Right. I mean, he's in Washington. He's from Massachusetts. So. Yeah. But anyways. Only in retrospect did Kennedy come to realize that the voter registration was just another kind of powder keg. As late as 1964, only 6% of eligible black voters were on the rolls in Mississippi. And local officials were hell-bent on ensuring that number didn't grow. By mid-1963, COFO's field staff, who had devoted nearly two years to recruiting potential voters, preparing them for citizenship and literacy tests and escorting them to counter-register offices, were at an impasse. Organizers had created beachheads in key towns acknowledged um, by Bob Moses, the understated but quietly charismatic math teacher from New York, who led SNCC's voter registration. Just say it. I'm not saying SNCC. It's stupid. (laughs) I'm not saying it. I'm not. I refuse. I support you, but no. Uh, so she's, she's so angry. SNCC. That's what happens uh, when you do, she doesn't have her meds. Oh, I probably do need to be on something. 
<laughs> that and her serial killer. You know. It's just a lot, just a bundle of white rage. <laughs> She's been doing some yard work in her backyard. I'm pretty sure they bur- they're burying the body. <laughs> We so did. we brought in a anybody lot disappear, of dirt. Anybody disappear lately in the Kansas City area? Let me know. <laughs> <laughs> um, SNCC's voter registration efforts in the Magnolia State, but it was not possible for uh, for us to register Negroes in Mississippi. An endless barrage of violence, police intimidation, and econ- economic reprisal hindered their efforts. Even when workers could convince the black residents to go down on their local court, to go down to their local courthouse, county officials often refused to enroll them. Local black professionals and businessmen who worked with COFO saw their bank loans called early, auto and home insurance policies canceled, and clientele dried up. The police beat and jailed organizers without cause. When Herbert Lee, a black farmer with nine children and an active member of the Amite County NAACP, volunteered to help Moses register local residents, State Representative E.H. Hurst shot him in, in broad daylight, and he died. Yeah, this elected official tells you. Yeah, an yeah. elected official yeah. and remember, murdered a man in yeah. broad daylight. And he elected officials represent the people who voted for him, so it's disgusting. white trash. Um, the county coroner cleared Hearst of all wrongdoing. The only eyewitness to the shooting, Army veteran and businessman uh, Lewis Allen, dared tell his story to federal authorities. Two and a half years later, he too was murdered. And quote from Moses says, there was no real reason to kill Lewis. And they gunned him down on his front lawn. We were just defenseless. There was no way of bringing national attention, and it seemed to me like we were just sitting ducks. The, ass- the assassination of state NAACP chief Medgar Evers in mid-'63 reinforced the message, no one was safe. That year, the coalition's key financial um, booster withdrew, withdrew support, setting the impossibility of enrolling a meaningful number of black voters. Exasperating the problem was, the anemic response from Washington. The Kennedy Justice Department remained stubbornly in the thrall of federalism, forever grasping at reasons why it couldn't intervene to protect the constitutional liberties and lives of civil rights workers, when it should have been looking for reasons why it could. Even when the issue at hand was clearly federal, as when state officials violated a long-standing Supreme Court decision mandating the integration of interstate bus terminals, Robert Kennedy proved a reluctant enforcer of the law. It's basically just like, oh, it's too hard. It's not going to happen, so we're just not going to do anything. Yeah, so he couldn't use the argument of federalism because interstate commerce is governed um, by the federal government. There's no... Right, so there's no reason they shouldn't have gotten involved. So in the fall of 1963, organizers adopted a new strategy. Rather than continue the futile effort to register new voters, they staged a parallel freedom ballot as a publicity stunt Assisting by, assisted by roughly 70 white students from Princeton, Stanford, and Yale, most of whom were recruited by Allard Lowenstein, Lowenstein? I would say Lowenstein. Lowenstein, a high-octane liberal activist who later served a term in Congress representing New York. COFO helped 83,000 black Mississippians cast mock ballots for gubernatorial candidate Aaron Henry, a black pharmacist, NAACP leader from Clarksdale, and Ed King, a liberal white college chaplain who agreed to stand for lieutenant governor. The stunt was successful. The Freedom Ballot campaign garnered unprecedented attention from national media outlets, which mostly focused on the novelty of white Ivy League students trekking across the state to canvas for black gubernatorial candidate. It was also proved that African Americans 
were eager to participate in the electoral system, which prompted Lowenstein and Moses to um, devise an even bolder scheme. They were bringing 1,000 white students to Mississippi the following summer to help establish a new party organization, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, MFDP, in stage of parallel federal elections. So they're bringing people in. You have the Democratic Party, which at this time you had the Dixiecrats. They held they held almost every office in the South at the time, unlike now it's all Republican. Right. Their idea was to bring in alternate candidates that weren't sanctioned through government laws and just have a parallel election system right. and have also parallel delegates sent to the National Democratic Committee. So um, were they but they so were they bringing these students down to actually vote or just to get people to vote? Get people to vote okay. in this, um, parallel election. In the process they would elect candidates for Congress, the MFDP delegates to the Democratic National Convention, thereby setting the stage for a dramatic credentials fight that would draw further attention to the state's lawlessness. The new plan provoked sharp controversy, particularly among Baltus's neck workers, who rejected that they needed white students to save the movement. But with backing from local black activists who were very pragmatic, as one SNCC coordinator observed, Moses' plan carried the day. The architects of the Freedom Summer were under no illusions. They never imagined that the young summit volunteers would manage to register large numbers of voters succeeding where veteran civil rights workers had failed. Rather, they believed that the press would respond to the beating of a Yale student as it simply would not have with a beating of a local Negro, as one SNCC leader later explained, which is right. It's literally so sad, but it's true. Yep. The students bring the rest of the country with them, Moses argued at the time. They are from good schools, and their parents are influential. James Foreman, the executive director of SNCC, later acknowledged we were, in fact, trying to consciously recruit a counter-power elite. Putting young Ivy League leaguers in harm's way wasn't ideal, but it would provide exactly what the organizations desperately needed, national attention and federal intervention. The goal, explained Moses, in advance of the summer project was to create political crisis. Only when metal has been um, brought to white heat can it be sharpened and uh, molded. He said, John Lewis, the newly elected um, chairman of SNCC, predicted that if white students were placed in harm's way, the federal government will have to take over the state. Out of this conflict of division and chaos will come something positive. Now, John Lewis passed away last July. Huge figure, figure in the civil rights movement. He served as a Democratic Party um, representative of Congress um, from 1986 to last year, so 17 terms there. He participated in um, the Selma to Montgomery March across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and he was from Georgia. He carried a lot of weight. And normally, I'm like, look, we. I personally think that we need to have limits on how long people can serve, right. but people like this, I'm like, you go for it, however long you want. Yeah. <laughs> You know, he comes from the great. He he comes from Georgia. You know, a great man. Went seen a lot. Been through a lot. He's been beaten through the civil rights era. But then Georgia hired. You know, elects people like that Marjorie Green, who's like dumber than my ass crack. <laughs> fucking dumb bitch. Sorry, we may have just lost a listener or two. That's eh, fine. Yeah, we don't want them anyway. Yeah, we probably need to lose them if they freaking subscribe to her sh- shenanigans. And he was part of like the big six. Yep. With like Martin Luther King, James Farmer, John Lewis. Philip Randolph, Roy Wilkins, and Whitney Young. And they, um, they were, those are the ones who helped organize the 1963 March on Washington. You know, 
Martin Luther King Jr. speech, I have a dream. Yeah. So. There was solid precedent within the civil rights movement for this kind of thinking. After suffering a frustrating setback in Albany, Georgia, where local officials responded to protests with relative equanimity, thereby cutting off the publicity that was the oxygen of the movement. Martin Luther King Jr. and his associates selected Birmingham as their next target precisely because they knew that local officials would overreact. Bombing him, as the city was popularly known, did not disappoint. The Project C for the conflict, Birmingham campaign crippled the city's downtown businesses with boycotts. So chaos and dysfunction by filling the jails to overcapacity, often with elementary and high school students. Elementary? Yeah. That's disgusting. Yeah, it's Birmingham. They were a disgusting city at the time. And triggered um, police violence that shocked this um, civilized world. This is, I think... If I remember right, these are the videos or say of like the uh, um, the dogs poses and the dogs. Uh, yeah. yeah, so I believe this is what this was. Like if you've not seen those videos, look it up because yeah. it's horrifying what they did to these kids. Oh. The movement would um, steadily remain nonviolent, but it learned how to provoke violence from others for political means. And the reason it was called bombing him, by the way, is because churches were being bombed by the. Yeah. Well, isn't that where, like, the three little girls were murdered in that bombing? I think so, yeah. In a church? Yeah. Yep. They were in the basement playing. The hardened political activists were members of the Emmett Till generation. Many of them remembered um, viewing in 1955 a famous photograph of Till's badly disfigured corpse in Jet Magazine, which we covered in a previous episode. And here we are nine years later, and they're still fighting for their rights. Absolutely, yeah. They understood the likelihood of extreme violence. As a white Mississippian, the civil rights sympathizer observed several years earlier, there's an open season on the Negroes now. They have got no protection, and any peckerwood who wants to go out and shoot himself one, and we will free him. Our situation will get worse and worse. Also, I will never get over. I've read some, because when I, we did the mm. Emmett Till episode, oh. I'm like, there are so many weird quotes saying peckerwood. I'm like, why is this such a thing? It's a southern it's thing. It's so I, yeah. bizarre. You know, it's crazy because I come from a small town, but like some of the old timers will say that. We'll say that, like you know, my friends and I be acting like Jack is like, but hey, stop being a peckerwood. You know, like so eh. weird. I think it's a generational <laughs> thing. It must be bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in the summer of 1964, things got worse. The White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, a KKK splinter group based in Mississippi, was founded and led by Samuel Bowers, who's a giant piece of shit. As the summer of 1964 approached, white Mississippians prepared for what they perceived was an invasion from the north and west. College students had been recruited in order to aid local activists who were conducting grassroots community organizing, voter registration, education, and drives in the south. Media reports exaggerated the number of, the, of youths expected. One Council of Federated Organizations representative is quoted as saying that nearly 30,000 individuals would visit Mississippi during the summer. Such reports had a jarring impact on white Mississippians and only responded by join, who only responded by joining the White Knights. Sam Bowers was born in um, 1924, and unfortunately, this fucking loser got to live until 2006. <laughs> uh, he was a convicted murderer and leading a white supremacist in Mississippi during the civil rights movement. In response to this movement and perceived threats to national security from Judaism and communism, he founded the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan and became its Imperial Wizard, which can we talk for a second about the dumbest names? They have the weirdest fucking names. 
Oh, they one of the, like I'm a grand dragon of blah yeah, blah blah. It's whatever all part. The fuck. It's all part of that secret society type thing because um, when the Ku Klux Klan first emerged oh, in the eighteen pour another glass yeah, of wine while we're yeah, in the eighteen sixties. It wasn't initially violent, violent like it became. Would you like to be topped off? Yeah, sure. Okay, cool. Uh, but they started. They started off. It, re- it was originally a grand wizard, and then they went to imperial wizard. So there's a worthless fact for That's you. Stupid. And there is yeah. like a dragon or something, right? Yeah, and, and it's been it's been disbanded, disbanded like twice, but it keeps reemerging. So <sighs> they're awful, and I hate them. Anyway. Yeah. Bowers was best known for violence and murders of civil rights activists in Southern Mississippi. Besides his role in the Freedom Summer Murders, he was responsible for the 1966 murder of Vernon Dahmer in Hattiesburg, for which he was sentenced to life in prison, 32 years after the crime. He also was accused of bombings of Jewish targets in the cities of Jackson and Meridian in 67 and 68, according to the man who was actually convicted of those bombings, Thomas A. Terrence III. He died in prison at the age of 82. KKK membership in Mississippi was soaring in 1964, with membership reaching more than 10,000. The Klan was prepared to use violence to fight the civil rights movement on April 24th. The group offered a demonstration of its power, staging 61 simultaneous cross burnings throughout the state, which I'll say is a real bummer. It's a real bummer anyway, but also that's my wedding anniversary. (laughs) And now now people are going to think that we like, I don't know, we're... Getting married on this wonderful KKK holiday. No, they're not going to think that, but I probably wouldn't have any big barbecues. I'll do my best. Okay. Moving forward, we will not have any barbecues on April the 24th, okay? On June 14th, the first wave of 250 volunteers arrived at the Western College for for Women in Oxford, Ohio, for a week-long training session which covered topics as wide-ranging as how to minimize injury during a police beating and how to address long-standing patterns of racial deference when speaking with black residents. National reporters also converged on the scene to capture footage of the students as they attended lectures and workshops, essentially confirming the initial calculation that white students would draw disproportionate media attention. John Doerr, the Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights, bluntly informed the summer workers that federal protection for you can be assured only by the creation and employment of a federal police force. The creation of of such a force, once taken, is not easily undone. In other words, the students were on their own. On June 21st, as the first group of students arrived in Mississippi, a second group assembled for training at Oxford. One white student later remembered sitting in the college auditorium and hearing an interruption at the side entrance. Three or four staff members had come in and were whispering. One of them walked over to the stage and sprang up to whisper to Moses, who had bent on his knees to hear. Moses had a pained look on his face. Yesterday morning, three of our people left Meridian, Mississippi to investigate a church burning in Neshoba County, he announced. They haven't come back, and we haven't had any word from them. The three missing men were Andrew Goodman, a summer volunteer from New York who arrived in Mississippi just one day before disappearing, and two core staff members, Michael Schwerner, a Cornell graduate from New York, and James Cheney, a black native of Meridian. Sam Bowers, the Imperial Wizard of the White Knights of Mississippi, sent word May 1964 to the Klansmen of Lauderdale and Neshoba counties that it was time to activate Plan 4. Plan 4 provided for the elimination of this, um, despised civil rights activist Michael Schwerner, who the Klan called Goatee, or Jew Boy. Doesn't that, like, put a chill up your spine? Yeah. And the elimination? I'm like, oof. 
that and the clan this came out after informants but plan four was like murder and they had different ones plan one was like intimidation plan two was like beating up you know plan three was like to burn their house or whatever mm-hmm. but yeah plan four is they he wanted them dead Schwerner, the first white civil rights worker based outside of the capital of um, Jackson, had earned the enmity of the Klan by organizing a black boycott of a white-owned business and would aggressively um, try to register blacks in and around Meridian to vote. A.K.A. he was a good person. (laughs) Yeah. The Klan's first attempt to eliminate Schwerner came on June 16, 1964, in the rural, rural Neshoba County community of Longdale, Schwerner had visited Lawndale on Memorial Day to ask permission of the black congregation at Mount Zion Church to use their church as a site of one of the freedom schools. The Klan knew of Schwerner's Memorial Day visit to Lawndale and expected him to return for a business meeting held at the church on the evening of June 16th around 10 p.m. When the Mount Zion meeting broke up, seven black men and three um, black women left the building to discover 30 lined up in a military fashion with rifles and shotguns. More men were gathered at the rear of the church. Talk about Ugh, a terrifying sight. No shit. I literally just, because like you can just picture it. Yep. And it's like bone chilling. Yeah. You, you got, I mean, you immediately know like. You're going to die. Shit mm. is going to go down. Yeah. It's horrifying. Frustrated when um, the search for the Jew boy was unsuccessful, some of the um, Klan members began beating the departing blacks. Ten gallons of gasoline were removed from one of the Klan um, members' cars and spread around the inside of the church. Mount Zion Church was soon engulfed in flames. Over the course of the summer of 1964, members of the Klan burned 20 black Mississippi churches. News of the beatings and the fire reached Michael Schwerner in Oxford, Ohio. Schwerner and his 21-year-old chief aide, a native black Meridian named James Cheney, were in Ohio to attend a three-day program sponsored by the National Council of Churches to train, recruit for the Mississippi Summer Project. Among those being trained for the summer of work aimed at improving the lives of black Mississippians was Queens College student named Andrew Goodman, who Schwerner um, convinced to come to Meridian. Anxious to get back to Mississippi to learn what they could about the disturbing events in Logdale, Schwerner, Cheney, and the newly recruited Goodman loaded into a blue Corps-owned Ford station wagon in the early morning hours of June 20th for the long trip back to Meridian. The next day, after a short night's sleep and a breakfast in Meridian, the three civil rights workers were again in the Corps wagon heading northwest towards Longdale. Longdale in Neshoba County was known as a high-risk area for civil rights workers. Lawrence Rainey, Neshoba County Sheriff, and his deputy Cecil Price were both members of the Klan. Although their Klan membership was not generally known, both had reputations as being tough on blacks. Rainey had been elected sheriff the previous November after campaigning as the man who can cope with situations that might arise. By the way, there's a picture of Price and the sheriff. Yeah, Rainey when there is a picture of him. It's just like the classic stereotype of some just redneck Bubba fucking sheriffs like you see in the yeah. South with fucking chaw in and everything. You're just like, yeah. They're disgusting. Yeah. There's a reason that that stereotype exists because of those two. Right. Well, more than just those two. Right. But Unfortunately. Yeah, they live up to it. In Neshoba County, it was well understood that the situations Rainey referred to meant meddlesome interference by outsiders with Mississippi State enforced policy of segregation. Schwerner told Meridian Corps worker Sue Brown that they should be back in the core office in Meridian by 4. If they weren't back by 4.30, she should start making phone calls. Which means that they knew 
Right. Like, this isn't a safe spot. So if we're not back by the time we say we're going to be back, like, shit has gone down. Yep. Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman began their Midsummer's Day visit to Neshoba County with an inspection of the burned-out remains of Mount Zion Church. They then visited the homes of four black members of the congregation to learn more about the incident. At one of the homes, the three civil rights workers were warned that a group of white men were looking for them. About 3 p.m., the trio was ready to head back to the relative safety of their Meridian office. There were two possible routes to Meridian. The most direct route was the road they had come up, Highway 491, a narrow clay road intersected by numerous dirt roads. An ambush, an ambush would be easy on 491. The other, less direct route was a blacktopped Highway 16, which would, take, which would take them west through Philadelphia, the county seat. Cheney turned on to Highway 16. Deputy Sheriff Price was at the time heading east on Highway 16. A few miles outside Philadelphia, Price spotted the well-known core wagon heading in his direction. Schwerner and Goodman most likely were crouched low in their seats, allowing Price to see only the black driver, James Cheney. Price shouted over his radio, I've got a good one, George Raymond. Raymond was a black civil rights leader hated by the Klan throughout Mississippi. Price uh, did a quick U-turn and headed back after his query. Cheney pulled the core wagon over to the side of the road just inside the Philadelphia city limits. So basically uh, they thought he was someone else. Yep. They thought it was like this George Raymond. So either way, they were going after somebody. So someone was not going to live that night. just makes you sick. Yeah. (laughs) Honestly, there's like no other word. Price arrested Schwerner, Goodman, and Cheney allegedly for suspicion of having been involved in the church arson and deposited the three into the Neshoba County Jail around 4 p.m. Soon thereafter, he met with the Neshoba County Clan Klegel or recruiter Edgar Ray Killen to tell, the, tell him of his um, exciting catch and to plan the deadly conspiracy that would unfold later that night. And we'll come back to this um, Edgar Ray here and a little bit later on. He's a piece of work. Some of what happened over the next um, seven, hour, seven hours in Neshoba County Jail is unknown. Um, Despite the fact that the schedule of fines for speeding was posted on the wall, Price said that the three men would have to remain in jail until the Justice of the Peace arrived to process the fine. We know that Schwerner asked to make a phone call, but his request was denied. If he wasn't concerned about it at this time, he should have been concerned when they denied his phone call. Yeah. And I think he probably realized this is not the North at that time. We also know that a call was made to the jail around 5.20 from the core program in the afternoon asking whether anyone there had information concerning the whereabouts of the three. We know also that the jailer who answered the, um, so answered the call, Minnie Herring, lied. We know that shortly after 10 p.m., Cecil Price showed up at the jail, collected Cheney's speeding fine with no justice of the peace. Price led them to their own packed car and told the three to get out of the county, then tailed them as they um, headed east out of town along Highway 19. The three civil rights workers by then no doubt suspected that they were being led into a trap, and in fact they were. Since receiving word from Price that Schwerner had been captured, Edgar Ray Killen, the Klan Klegel, which... Again, there's just stupid fucking names. I hate every bit of it. <laughs> and an ordained ordained Baptist minister had been busy recruiting members of the Neshoba and Lauderdale County Cla- Claverns? Clavin, yeah. I don't know. For some butt ripping, as he put it. I need to find out why they use K for everything. It's got to be something. I don't know. They're fucking dumb. <laughs> but, yeah, just real quick, a Baptist minister for... Yeah. For those who are somewhat ignorant of history, the Baptist church has historically been a very racist-oriented type organization. 
they, you know, they made the backbone of the clan. The Southern Baptists did. Even to this day, they're not real accepting of people. And it's literally like part of their doctrine that women have to, you know, be a service to men. I don't quote me like word for word on that, but I mean the Bible yeah, says that. Yeah, so they they're like, yeah, you lower level, but mm. yeah. <laughs> Uh, an afternoon meeting at the Longhorn Drive-In in Meridian with local clan bigwigs was followed by a later meeting at Atkins Mobile Homes with eager young members who would participate in the actual killings. Imagine that. Shocker. White trash mobile homes in the South. Mm. Mm, deadly cocktail. Kellen told the dozen or more recruits to buy rubber gloves and to be in Philadelphia by 815. After offering the Klan men a drive-by tour of the Neshoba County Jail and going over the details of the planned release, Killen headed off to see a departed uncle at the local funeral home and thereby established his alibi. After following the core station wagon out of town, Price returned to Philadelphia to drop off an accompanying Philadelphia police officer, then raced back onto Highway 19 in pursuit of the three civil rights workers. Meanwhile, two other cars filled with young clan members were also speeding down the same with the same object in mind. Price's souped-up Chevy saw the core wagon come in into view less than 10 miles from the county line. Cheney decided to run for it, and a high-speed chase ensued. Cheney swerved directly onto Highway 492, but Price made the turn as well. Seconds later, for reasons unknown, Cheney braked his car, and the three surrendered. According to James Jordan, a Klan member who would later become a key FBI informant, Price said, I thought you were going back to Meridian if we let you out of jail. When Cheney said that's where they were headed, Price said you were sure taking the long way around to get out of the car. The three were then placed in the dep- in Deputy Price's car. Soon, three cars, Price's and two full of Klan members, were traveling in a procession down an unmarked dirt turnoff called Rock Cut Road. Now, it is not known whether the three were beaten before they were killed. Uh, Klan informant denied that they were, but there is physical evidence that Cheney was beaten, which I tend to believe, knowing... Because he was the one black one. Right, and the white hate involved with this. What is known is that 26-year-old disarmably discharged ex-Marine Wayne Roberts was a trigger man. Roberts shot Schwerner first, and then Goodman, both at point-blank range. James Jordan shouted, save one for me, and shot Cheney in the stomach. Roberts fired the final bullet into Cheney's head. Now, James Jordan would turn into FBI informant, and second informant present at the killings, Doyle Barnett, also fired two shots at Cheney. Like after he was dead? Yeah, that's what I believe. The bodies of the three civil rights workers were taken to a dam site at a 253-acre Old Jolly Farm. The farm was owned by Philadelphia businessman Olin Burridge, who reportedly had announced at the Klan meeting when the impeding arrival in Mississippi of an army of civil rights workers was discussed. Hell, I've got a dam that'll hold a hundred of them. The bodies were placed together in a hollow at the dam site and then covered with tons of dirt by a caterpillar um, tractor. While the bodies were um, being um, buried, Price had returned to his duties in Philadelphia. Around 12.30 a.m., Price met with Sheriff Rainey. Given their clan membership and the close relationship between the two, it's almost unimaginable that at the time, Price did not um, relate in full detail the events following the release from jail, Schwerner, Goodman, and Cheney. Yeah, there's no way he didn't know. Oh, yeah, I'm the sure sheriff he, didn't know. I'm sure he was bragging he was a, about it. And also, like, Rainey, there's no way he didn't know before they were released right. that that was going to happen. And I'm sure Price was bragging about how it went down. At the core office in Meridian, meanwhile, staffers were growing increasingly concerned about the long overdue civil rights workers. Calls inquiring about their whereabouts turned up no helpful information. 
At 12.30 a.m., a call was placed at John Doerr, the Justice Department point man in Mississippi. Less than a week earlier, Doerr had been Oxford, Ohio, warning summer project volunteers that there is no federal police force that could protect them from unexpected trouble from the expected trouble in Mississippi. Door feared the worst. By 6 a.m., Door had invested the FBI with the power to investigate a po- possible violation of federal law. The morning after the civil rights workers' dis- disappearance, the phone rang in the office of Meridian-based FBI agent John Proctor. In the movie Mississippi Burning, the character played by Gene Hackman, who I love. I like Gene Hackman. I too. do, too. He's great. Hey, Gene Hackman's a former Marine. Another worthless oh, fact. Oh, nice. So Gene Hackman, his character is loosely based on Proctor. Within hours, Proctor was in Neshoba County interviewing blacks, community leaders, Sheriff Rainey, Rainey, and Deputy Price. Proctor was an Alabama native who had successfully cultivated relationships with all sorts of people, including local law enforcement officers who might aid in his investigations. After his interview with Cecil Price, the deputy, sorry, we're just pouring more and more wine because it is so depressing over here. Sorry about that. <laughs> Feel free to pour yourself one, y'all. Uh, <laughs> I think that's the rest of the bottle. Oh, well, we have a second one, but back up. <laughs> uh, no. I still need to drive. <laughs> don't drink and drive, people. No, don't do that. Or drive and drink. Yeah, same difference. <laughs> After his interview with Cecil Price, the deputy slapped Proctor on the back and said, Hell, John, let's have a drink. Price went to his car and pulled contraband liquor out of his trunk. That evening, June 22nd, U.S. Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy escalated the search and ordered 150 federal agents to be sent from New Orleans. Which, by the way, if these were three black victims... That, that wouldn't have happened. happened. No. Nope, I totally agree. It's awful, but yeah. Uh, in 1964, Mississippi was the only state without a central FBI office. Shocker. Uh, since passing in 1932, the Lindbergh Law brought kidnapping cases under federal jurisdiction. More agents would come to Mississippi over the next several days, ultimately tolling more than 200. Two local Native Americans found the smoldering car that evening in northeast Neshoba County. By the next morning, on the 23rd, that information had been communicated to Proctor. Investigators found the Blue Core station wagon still smoldering from an attempt to destroy evidence now the focus shifted from rescue to recovery of the men's bodies. And by the way, some of our listeners are like wondering, two Native Americans in Mississippi? Well, around there, there's some ancestral burial mounds mm-hmm. for the Choctaw Indians. And there's an Indian. Well, yeah, there's an Indian um, agency there, too. So that's that's why you see Native Americans. Yeah, they used to be all over the place, right. guys. Until and they got shipped we, off to Oklahoma. Uh, did horrible things to them. The biggest land thieves in the world, Americans. Oh, listen, white people are the worst, guys. I'm so sorry. While Proctor was at the scene searching the area around the burned blue core station wagon, he looked up to see Joseph Sullivan, the FBI's major case investigator inspector. It was by then abundantly clear that Johnson administration was placing top priority on the case. By June 24th, the federal government had arranged for hundreds of sailors from the nearby Naval Air Station in Meridian uh, to searching on June 25th, the snake infested swamps and woods in Neshoba County. Days later, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover would fly to Jackson to announce the opening of the FBI's first office in Mississippi. Throughout July and during the investigation, searchers, including Navy divers, FBI agents, discovered the bodies of Henry Ezekiah D. and Charles Eddie Moore in the area. The first was found by fishermen. I'm going to interject real quick and say there's a fantastic uh, podcast called Someone Knows Something. I think it's their season two. 
that they then cover the the D and Eddie Moore's murders because right. they talked about how like they found them and we were really looking for these three, three civil rights workers right. and no one ever really did investigation on this and you have to listen to it it is so fantastic i mean and it act, something actually comes from it they actually get someone convicted right. it's fantastic yeah. sorry someone knows something season two is fantastic yeah now those two were college students that disappeared in may 1964 who had been kidnapped beaten and murdered federal searchers also discovered 14 year old herbert orsby wearing a core t-shirt and five other unidentified mississippian Mississippi blacks whose disappearances in the um, recent past had not attracted uh, attention from the outside media or outside their local communities. In total, the remains of eight African-American men were found. Now this is just tells you about insane. It it tells you about the society and mentality. They go looking for these guys and find eight others. And remember, this is a small part of Mississippi. So you can imagine other parts of the South, other parts of the state, how many blacks, just disappeared only only people that knew about people in the local well, community and then obviously the, the police aren't going to do anything about no, it because they're the ones probably responsible who did it right. or know who did it you know right. by the end of the first week all major news networks were covering their disappearance in part because schwerner and goodman um, were both whites from the north president lyndon johnson met with the parents of goodman and schwerner Imagine that one. Oh yeah, but in not the Jesus overall family. office, yeah. Shocker. Walter Cronkite, broadcast on uh, broadcaster of the C- CBS Evening News, on June twenty fifth, nineteen sixty four, called the disappearances the focus of the whole country's concern. Meanwhile, Mississippi officials resented the outside attention, much like like they did with Emmett Till. Sheriff Rainey said they were they're just hiding and trying to cause a lot of um, bad publicity for this part of the state. Mississippi Governor Paul B. Johnson Jr. dismissed concerns, saying the young men could be in Cuba. Yeah, because young men just run off to Cuba so, all the time when they're actually they're like down here to do right. work. Far, far flung accusations that they're in Cuba just fucking ass nine shit. Just insert certain people from the last like twelve months for just saying asinine stupid shit to try to distract <laughs> attention, but no other comment from me on that one. Mickey Schwerner's um wife Rita, who was also a core um, worker, tried to um convert um, attention to the overlooked victims of racial violence. As you should. The slaying of Negroes in Mississippi is not news. It's only because my um husband and Andrew Goodman were white and that the national alarm has been sounded, she told the reporters during the search. And, like, unfortunately, that's still true. Yeah. You know what I mean? When a white blonde girl goes missing, everyone freaks out. Oh, yeah. on every news station. Meanwhile, right. you know, a yeah. young black girl goes missing, and we don't hear about it. Oh, that. yeah, we see it around here. It's like... Happens yeah. all the time. Suburbs of Kansas City, that shit's going to be plastered on there quick. Yeah. More urban area. It may get it may get a token like, news story later on, but it's, it's, I mean, it's still the way it is anymore. That's my wine glass, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Throwing it back. Yeah. My doctor said I had a drink. <laughs> it soon became apparent to Inspector Sullivan the case um, would ultimately be solved by conducting an investigation rather than a search. It turned out to be an extremely difficult investigation. The Shoba County residents, many of whom either participated in the conspiracy or knew of it, were tight-lipped. Agent Proctor found that some of the most useful information came from the came from kids. So he would um stuff candy in his pockets before um setting out for the day schedule 
of interviews. A promise of $25,000 to $30,000, which is equivalent to about $210,000 now. And reward money um, finally brought forward and information passed through intermediary called Mr. X concerning the location of the bodies. Jerry Mitchell, who we'll cover a little bit later, he had he's very influential in flushing out a lot of civil rights crimes and bringing people to justice. But he was an investigative reporter for a paper there in Meridian, um, Mississippi. A report in 2010 through a story that Highway Patrolman Maynard King told Sullivan the location of the bodies. Mitchell also reported that the FBI's promised $30,000 reward was made after the FBI learned the location of the bodies and was part of a strategy to increase finger pointing and suspicion within the Klan. Love it. Tear them yep. apart. On August 4th, 1964, Agent Proctor was at the Old Jolly Farm to take um, f- photographs of the bodies as they were uncovered at the dam site. Inspection Sullivan invited Deputy Price to the dam site so he could help um, remove the bodies. Sullivan was interested in observing the reaction of the deputy, who was by then under heavy suspicion. Proctor noted that Price picked up the shovel and dug right in and gave no indication whatsoever that any any of it bothered him. True sociopath. Yep. 100%. Throughout the fall of 1964, the FBI continued investigating the case. State and local law enforcement did not pursue it, claiming insufficient evidence. Because murder was a crime covered by state law, the federal government could not bring charges. Finally, it would be informants from within the Klan that would break the case open. The first information from a Klan member at the periphery of the conspiracy enabled the FBI to focus on the more central figures. One clan member who received a great deal of attention from John Proctor was James Jordan, a Meridian speakeasy owner. Over the course of five increasingly rough interviews, Jordan came to, uh, to see turning state's evidence as his best bet to avoid a long prison term. He, also promi- he was also promised $3,500 and help in relocating him, himself and his family in return for his full story. Jordan would become the government's key witness to the crime. I guess $3,500 was... Well, I, I mean, I don't know. What was the other one? And it was like... It was only it was like $30,000, which is like $210,000 a day. So, so I was like... $3,500 is what, like twenty? I guess 15? if you're I guess if you're poor white trash, you're like, hey, I hit the lottery. I mean, that's enough to move, mm-hmm. I guess, you know. <laughs> In the summer of 1964, according to Linda Shiro, the girlfriend of a no-mafia enforcer and other sources... FBI field agents in Mississippi recruited Gregory Scarpa to help them find the missing civil rights workers. The FBI was convinced that the three men had been murdered but could not find their bodies. The agents thought that Scarpa, using illegal interrogation techniques not available to agents, might succeed at gaining the information <laughs> from so they the were suspects. Just like, Look, I guess someone in there can yeah. knock some heads around. Yeah, we'll turn our backs, just take care of business. You know what? I'm here for it. In this case, yeah. I'm here for it. Now, here's a little background on Mr. Scarpa here. Gregory Scarpa Sr., who was born 1928, died in 1994. I think I believe he died of AIDS. And it wasn't because of anything. It was actually due to a blood transfusion. He ended up winning a legal battle oh, over shit. it. But nicknamed the Grim Reaper, which is an awesome name for a mafia guy. I mean, truly yep. badass nickname. Also known as the Mad Hatter, which is even co- oh which is cool. Oh my god, that's even better. <laughs> he was an American capo and hitman for the Columbia crime family, and then informant for the FBI during the 1970s and 80s. Scarpa was a chief enforcer and a veteran hitman for the Columbo boss Carmine, which I love. That's a classic. Uh, Carmine. Yeah, Carmine. 
Persico. He was sentenced to life in prison in 1993 for murder and died in prison on June 4, 1994. Scarpa committed three murders in 1991 and was suspected to have committed a minimum of 80 murders from the Jesus. early 1950s to 1992. So and Scarpa is believed by the FBI to have murdered between 100 to 120 people. Truly, the mob is so fascinating. Yeah, so that was... But they get convicted for three, and they're like, so, yeah, there's like 100 more you don't know yeah. about, yo. Yeah, there's, so that's who they brought in to help with their investigation. I know some people are thinking, oh, that's fucking terrible, but I don't, uh, I don't really it, have a problem I with mean, it. to get into the clan and beat right. people up, I'm okay with it. Once Scarpa arrived in Mississippi, local eight agents allegedly provided him with a gun and money to Jesus. pay for <laughs> to pay for information. Oh, man. Scarpa and the agent allegedly pistol whipped and kidnapped Lawrence Bird, a TV salesman and secret Klansman from his store in Laurel and took him to the Camp Shelby, a local army base. Hell yeah. At Shelby, Scarpa severely beat Bird and stuck a gun barrel down his throat. Bird finally revealed to Scarpa the location of the three um, men's bodies. That is God's work, y'all. So here, <laughs> you know, this contradicts what Mitchell said earlier that came from a highway patrolman, but I like this story better. I like this yeah. story better, too. <laughs> the FAI was never officially, has never officially confirmed Scarpa's story, though not necessarily contradicting the claim of Scarpa's involvement in the matter investigative journalist you know mitchell and uh, illinois uh, school teacher barry bradford claimed that you know mississippi highway patrolman mayor king did it now in january 1966 scarpa allegedly helped the fbi a second time in mississippi on the murder case of vernon um, Dahmer, killed in a fire set by the clan after the second trip scarpa and the fbi had a sharp disagreement about the reward for his services the fbi then dropped scarpa as a confidential informant but which i really think is you know lost cause like Right. It should have kept him around, probably. <laughs> this guy was obviously well, getting shit done. Well, the fact is, you know, he was still offing people for the mob after that. I mean, and probably during it, and they're just, like, looking the other way. I mean, probably. No, informants get away with crazy shit. Yeah. By late November 64, the, the FBI accused 21 Mississippi men of engineering a conspiracy to injure, oppress, threaten, and intimidate Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner. By December of 1964, the Justice Department had enough information to authorize arrests. On the morning of December 4th, a team of federal agents swept through Neshoba and Lauderdale counties, arresting 19 men, including Sheriff Rainey and Deputy Price. Yes, yes, for conspiring to deprive Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman of their civil rights under color of state law. Two individuals were not interviewed and photographed, H. Barnett and James Jordan would later confess their roles during the murder. Six days later, a U.S. commissioner dismissed the charges. He concluded that the arrests were based on hearsay evidence. Well, that's disappointing. I was just saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, all excited. <laughs> a month later, prosecutors brought the charges before a federal grand jury in Jackson, Mississippi, which indicted 18 men in January of 65. But again, the Justice Department was disappointed. The following month, the defense asked federal judge William Harold Cox to throw out the indictments. Cox dismissed the charges against the majority of the defendants, maintaining that the law applied only to law enforcement, in this case, W. Sheriff Price, the county sheriff, and a patrolman. The prosecution appealed, and in 66, the Supreme Court reinstated the charges, ruling that the law applied to both law enforcement officials and civilians. As the Justice, Justice Department prepared for trial, defense attorneys made the cynical argument that the original original indictments were flawed because the pool of jurors from which the grand jury was drawn contained insufficient numbers of minorities. The defense argued that? Yes. 
The defense argued that. The hypocritical side of things for racist people. Jesus. Rather than attempt to refute um, the charge, the government summoned a new grand jury, and on February 28, 1967, won re-indictments. The list of those uh, indicted differed slightly from the original list and included the names of 18 Klansmen. Now, I want to circle back to this Judge Cox and... Obviously a piece of shit. Judge Cox was an ardent segregationist by all accounts. Cox owed his job to his friend and Old Miss Law School roommate, James Eastland, chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. In 1962, Senator Eastland had been blocking President Kennedy's appointment of NAACP counsel Thurgood Marshall to the U.S. Court of Appeals. Kennedy wanted Marshall on the court badly, so Eastland proposed a deal. He reportedly told Attorney General Robert Kennedy, tell your brother if he will give me Harold Cox, I will give him the N-word. Now, a little background for you um, people that are ignorant of history. Don't say that. Ignorant means just not knowing. doesn't mean you're stupid. Okay. Don't feel bad about it if you don't know anything, guys. It's okay. (laughs) You don't like it when I say ignorant. I don't. It's mean. It seems mean. Ignorant means just don't know. Well, it feels like you're stupid. No, stupid is because you choose not to know. Okay, okay. Ignorant just means you don't know. All right, guys. It's okay. (laughs) Now, Thurgood Marshall was an American lawyer and civil rights activist who served as Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. He was on the Supreme Court until 1991. Marshall was the court's first African-American justice. Prior to his judicial service, he successfully argued several cases for the Supreme Court, including Brown v. Board of Education 1964, which ended school segregation. Now, John Cox and John Doerr, who would prosecute the Mississippi burning case, knew each other well before voting rights cases brought by the Justice Department beforehand. In fact, Doerr had been present when Judge Cox made the most serious mistake of his judicial career. Doerr later recalled, I was in the chamber on an application for a temporary injunction. I said to Judge Cox, there's nothing un-American about blacks wanting to vote. Cox responded by describing African-American voter applicants as a bunch of chimpanzees. Cox's statement appeared the next day in a story in the New York Times and led to an impeachment effort that nearly cost him his job. It should have cost him his job. It should have. Hopefully today he wouldn't have had his job anymore. No, Republicans were kept Don't say that. I would like to think that we're all getting better. (laughs) Hopefully. (laughs) Trial in the case of United States versus... Cecil Price et al. began on October 7, 1967, in the Meridian courtroom of Judge William Cox. Chief Prosecutor John Doerr and other government inter- attorneys had reason to be concerned about Cox, who was also known as a segregationist. Across the street from the courthouse, Raymond Roberts, the brother of one of the defendants, planted a large Confederate flag. Shocker. The flag brought cheers from onlookers. Can you imagine that shit show outside the courthouse? Just fucking, just... You know, the it's dreads just like hu- white trash. Yeah, dreads of humanity out there. Ugh. It's and it's all. It's also like they should have moved this because you don't get to be that. That judge would never allowed to be moved because it would have been up to the judge Cox. Yeah, he wouldn't have done it. But but it should have because you know mm-hmm. their peers are all probably. I mean, I would like to hope not, but probably a lot of them agree. Yeah, oh, yeah. With what they did, you look at me. Um, you look at me. Murders got. Di- Got discharged by the juries, white juries in the South yeah, at the well, time. Emmett Till, guys, if you haven't listened to episode two. 
Federal marshals stood on the courthouse steps, hoping to discourage anyone who might think of climbing over the police barricades. Inside the building, a crowd of reporters gathered outside the second floor courtroom as 200 summoned potential jurors waited for the start of proceedings. The Klansmen in the dock and those cheering them on were well described by James Silver in his book, Mississippi, The Closed Society. There is an anxious, fearful, frustrated group of marginal white men who exist in, who exist in every Mississippi community. They are impelled to keep the Negro down in order to look up, up to themselves. They may not raise their low standard of living by blaming it on Negroes, but they do release an aggressive energy upon a socially accepted scapegoat. Themselves last in everything else. They can still rejoice in having the Negro beneath them. You know what? Insert, and that's really the basis of all right, of it, isn't right. it? Like, Yeah, and what's sad today, if you take out the Negro reference and insert wherever you want, that mentality still exists in several people today. 100%. It's really awful. Yep. You're not better than anyone. Yep. But, you know, finding scapegoats for No, for 100%. Yeah. A jury of seven white men and five white women, ranging in ages from 34 to 67, was selected. But selection came only after the Justice Department made an extraordinary effort to ensure that no Klan member slipped onto the jury. Even one would doom the government's case. Prosecutors also wanted a smart, respectable jury. John Doar said in an interview, we... We were looking for signs of intelligence. I had my guys look at everybody's homes. We were looking for homes that were well kept up. Which also, like, just to say, like, I get that they were, like, looking for people who are, like, middle class and, like, whatever. But, like, tons. We look at these, like, these guys who are in the clan are business owners and police officers. Right. You are, well. So it doesn't mean anything. uh, Well, police officers definitely in the South at that time. Let's just say. I'm saying, like, they're middle class white people. They're, it's, it doesn't mean that they're not racist. Right. Is what I'm saying. He's looking for college educated that have the ability to hopefully think. As expected, defense attorneys exercised uh, peremptory challenges against every one of 17 potential black jurors. A white man who admitted under questioning by Robert Hauberg, the U.S. attorney for Mississippi, that he had been a member of the KKK a couple years ago, was challenged for cause. Judge Cox denied the challenge. Shocker. Yeah. One of the 12 defense attorneys pointed at Doerr in his opening statement. He told the jury that the government government's lead lawyer was the same despised Justice Department official who forced the Negro, James Meredith, into the Mississippi of University. Doerr nodded in confirmation he had been at Meredith's side during all of those first 10 days of his registration. The defense attorney, it's just, a, oh, yeah. it's just disgusting how he plays the whole... Well, yeah, because he tries to say, like, yeah. look, he obviously loves black people. Right. like, And you know what I mean? Like, trying to get them to be like, oh, we hate him already right. before this starts. It's just like, I mean, you kind of go back to different movies, you know, like, you know, Kill a Mockingbird, those court scenes in some of those movies, mm. you know, depict the South, just these, like, Southern, like, lawyers are just... You think lawyers are bad now, imagine, like, a racist lawyer like that, oh, yeah. just freaking Ugh, horrible if you haven't read that book you've got to read it it's the best the movie's good yeah. too the movie's gregory, a classic gregory yeah. peck is just mm, you like gregory perfect. peck oh my gosh yes he's so hot in that movie uh, are you for real i he's part, he's more he's more i love the movie i love the movie i think it's a great movie and he's probably he's probably hand, he's probably more handsome in that movie than others others of his sure. movie because like the his glasses yeah because like it's like his western movies looks like a clown Ugh. but such a good movie. It absolutely is. I own it. So. <laughs> yeah. On the first day, the defense made a huge mistake when it cross-examined one of the government's background witnesses. The witness was Reverend Charles Johnson, who worked with Schwimmer in the Meridian. Defense attorney Laurel Weir launched into a series of outrageous questions about whether Schwerner was an atheist, whether he went to Cuba. God. 
uh, like guys like Rudy Giuliani doing the questioning, <laughs> and whether he advocated turning, whether he advocated burning draft cards. So basically, um, is he a godless communist? Right. <laughs> like that's literally what he's trying to get across. The series of questions ended when Weir asked whether you or Mr. Schwerner didn't advocate and try to get young male Negroes to sign statements agreeing to rape white women once a week during the hot summer of 1964. What a fucking question. That ugh. They don't want the white women. Why now, is it such a big thing? Like That's always like... This is what many called the turning point of the trial would happen early on. The question prompted Judge Cox to break into break in to note that such a question was highly improper. He asked the defense attorney if he could show a reason for posing it. Weir said the question had been passed to him in writing. Cox demanded to know who wrote it. After an awkward silence, one of the defense attorneys admitted that Brother Killen, the, the preacher, uh-huh. so defendant Edgar Ray Killen, wrote the question this yeah he's a yeah. fucking piece of shit real man of god uh the incident was important because it made clear to the defendants and more importantly to the jury that judge cox was taking the trial seriously and that they should too door called the defense move a tremendous blunder and said in an interview in 1999 that it was the turning point of the trial cox in fact in fact called the question Improper stating, I'm not going to allow a farce to be made of this trial. So at least he was trying to be semi-impartial, I guess. It's actually, he did the right thing, so I'll give him credit for that. The heart of government's case was presented through the testimony of three Klan informants, Wallace Miller, Delmar Dennis, and James Jordan. Miller described the organization of the Lauderdale Clavern and described the conversations with exalted Cyclops, Frank Hurden. (laughs) Hey, Look, rem- no one's gonna take you seriously with these stupid ass names. It reminds me of watching a fucking like Saturday morning cartoon of like the Justice League. Exalted Cyclops, uh, get like, out of it here! It sounds like a freaking comic book, you know, you know, villain. That's yeah. what it sounds like. Can uh, I be the high man mentor or whatever, right. or is it mentor? What are the mantis? <laughs> <laughs> but what are the guys who have horses, bodies, and man torso? Huh? A mentor. Yeah, a mentor. Yeah, I want to be the high mentor of the clan, please. <laughs> Stupid. So, Hurden and Clegel Edgar Ray Killen, you know, the minister, about the June 21st operation in Neshoba County. Dennis incriminated Sam Bowers, the founder and imperial wizard of the White Knights of the KKK in Mississippi. Dennis quoted Bowers as having said that the killing of Schwerner and the two others, it was the first time that Christians had planned, carried out the execution of a Jew. (sighs) Wow. It was also through um, Dennis that the government introduced the contents of a letter written by Bowers pretending to be from an official of a logging company referring to the murders as the big logging operation. And to the suspects of the FBI investigation as those deep in the swamp. At another point in, the, in his testimony, Dennis described a Klan meeting in the pasture of the Klan member Clayton Lewis. He then pointed to Lewis, the mayor of the mayor of Philadelphia, sitting in the defense table as a member of the twelve-man defense team. Holy shit! James Jordan was the government's only witness to the actual killings. Fearing a Klan assassination, the government had arranged to have Jordan hustled into court by five agents with guns drawn. Like somehow a movie. Right. 
after first um, requiring hospitalization for hyperventilating and then collapsing and having to be carried from the um, courtroom on a stretcher, an obviously nervous Jordan finally made it to the witness stand. Get your shit together, Jordan. Get it together. I'm sure, I mean, the clan was willing to kill anybody, so, I mean, I'm sure (laughs) they're going to kill him. Uh, Jordan described the events on June 21st and the early morning of June 22nd. From the gathering of the clan members in Meridian to the burial of the bodies at the Old Jolly Farm. His vivid testimony caused one black female spectator to break down and have to be led from the courtroom sobbing. The defense case consisted of a series of alibi and character witnesses. Local residents testified as to the reputation for truth and veracity of various defendants or to having seen them on June 21st at locations such as funeral homes or hospitals. John Doerr presented the closing argument for the government on October 18th. He used the opportunity to address the question that probably still was on many jurors' minds. Why is this federal prosecution? Doerr told jurors... I am here because our national government is concerned about your local law enforcement and in a civil civilization, local law must work if we deserve our liberty and freedom. When local law enforcement officials became involved as participants in violent crime and use their position, power and authority to accomplish this, there is very little to be hoped for except with assistance from the federal government. But members of the jury, exactly what does that mean? It means that the federal, go- the federal government is not invading Mississippi. It means only that these defendants are tried for a crime under federal law in a Mississippi city before a Mississippi federal judge in a Mississippi courtroom before 12 men and women from the state of Mississippi. The sole responsibility of the determination of guilt or innocence of these men remains in the hands where it should remain, the hands of 12 citizens from the state of Mississippi. Dorr told the jury that this was a calculated, cold-blooded plot. Three men, hardly more than boys, were its victims. Point at Price Door said that Price used the machinery of law, his office, his power, his authority, his badge, his uniform, his jail, his police car, his police gun. He used them all to take, to hold, to capture, and kill. Sorry, I'm getting emotional. It's so awful. Door concluded by telling jurors that he and other lawyers say here today will soon be forgotten, but what you 12 do here, here today will long be remembered. One day after having begun its deliberations, the jury reported to Judge Cox that was deeply divided and unable to reach a verdict. Over defense objections, the judge responded by giving the jury what is called the Allen charge or the dynamite charge for its purpose of breaking open a deadlocked jury. Shortly after Cox gave his charge, defendant Wayne Roberts joked to Cecil Price, we've got some dynamite for them ourselves. The remark was overheard by a court officer and reported to the judge. Now, Allen charge, uh, as just mentioned, or dynamite charge, is this simply when a Jury comes back saying they can't reach an agreement. He just basically tells them, go back to work. You're not leaving until you come to the conclusion. So right. that's what he's ref- being referenced. Which good. Yeah. On the morning of October 20th, 1967, the jury returned with its verdict. The verdict on its face appears to be the result of a compromise. Seven defendants, mostly from Lauderdale County, were convicted. The list of the convicted men included Deputy Sheriff Cecil Price, Imperial um, Wizard Sam Bowers, Triggerman Wayne Roberts, Jimmy Snowden, Billy Wayne Posey, and Horace Barnett. Seven men, mostly from Neshoba County, were acquitted, including Sheriff Lawrence Rainey, burial site owner Olin Burridge, and exalted Cyclops Frank Hurden. In three cases, including that of Edgar Ray Killen, 
The jury was unable to reach a verdict. Charges were dropped against one defendant, Travis Barnett, before deliberations. John Doerr was satisfied. To have the jury um, return that verdict was a great thing. His only regret was that the jury didn't reach a verdict on Edgar Ray Killen. Killen was really central to the conspiracy, Doerr said. The vote for conviction was 11-1 for Killen. Lone holdout revealed she could not bring herself the vote to convict a preacher. Killen, of course, was thrilled returning home to Philadelphia after the trial. Killen told a neighbor, said, man, I thought they were fitting me for overalls over there. Let me say something about this juror. <sighs> I know I'm going to upset it some people with this It doesn't matter that one. he's a preacher. Exactly. It when doesn't you, matter. I hope this lady has, whether you believe in hell or not, I do like Dante's Infernals, one of my favorite, <laughs> favorite books. I hope she has spent the rest of eternity being fucking tortured. And... <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just like, when people just blindly believe in something like, oh, he's a, you know, he's a man of the cloth. He can't do anything wrong. Well, you know what? Priests like little boys and, you know, Southern Baptists, you know, are racist as far as like historically with the KKK. That's with the backbone of the KKK back then. Like, I was like he's and, still a man. And, and when you blindly believe that all police officers are good, I was like, when you blindly believe in anything, yeah, it's like, you're a fucking fool. I'm sorry. You're a fucking dumbass. Yeah. You know, you're living in a fucking fancy world. So I hope this lady. That's the only reason he got off because this chick was like, yeah. I'm a good Christian woman. And I just can't. Yeah. I can't believe. I hope she contact, contracted syphilis or something oh fucking terrible. God. Fucking bitch. Anyways, yeah. the convictions in the case represented the first ever convictions in Mississippi for the killing of a civil rights worker. New York Times called the verdict a major of the quiet revolution that is taking place in the Southern um, attitudes. Eh, Not really. So the ways to go, but it was a positive step forward. No, no debating that. Yeah. On December 29th, judge Cox imposed sentences. Roberts and Bowers got 10 years. Posey and Price got six years. And the other um, three convicted defendants got four. Cox said in the sentence, they killed one, one N word, one Jew and one white man. I gave them all, what I thought they deserved. Meaning, because they weren't white, they weren't full humans. Right. You gotta remember, so, the KKK did not like Jewish people or black people. I know. Or sympathizers, so. After serving four years of a six-year sentence, Cecil Price rejoins his family in Philadelphia. In a 1977 New York Times interview, Price revealed that he recently watched and enjoyed the television show Roots, <laughs> which, <laughs> okay, so clearly he's not a racist anymore. Yeah, um, Jesus. His views on integration have changed. He said, we've got to accept this, that things are going to be, and that's it. It doesn't really sound like he accepted it. He, he was just, just like, oh, this is uh, how it is. Yeah, got to yeah, live yeah, with it. Exactly. In 1998, Jerry Mitchell, the investigative reporter for the Jackson Clarion Ledger, published excerpts from a 1984 interview with Samuel Bowers in which he spoke openly about the killings. Quote, I was quite delighted to be convicted and have the main instigator of the entire affair walk out of the courtroom a free man, which everybody, including the trial judge and the prosecutors and everybody else, knows that that happened. Mitchell's reporting established that Mal Bowers was referring to Killen. The interview, which is now available to the public, was part of an oral history project to be held by the Mississippi Department of Archives and History and sealed under Bowers' death. Mitchell, whose work on unsolved cases of the civil rights era earned him a 2009 MacArthur Fellowship, never revealed how he got the access to the interview. Jerry Mitchell, an award-winning investigative reporter, wrote extensively about the case for six years. Mitchell helped to secure convictions and other high-profile civil rights era murders, including the assassination of Medgar Evers 
the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing, and the murder of Vernon Dahmer. Mitchell assembled new evidence regarding the murders of the three civil rights workers. He also located new witnesses and pressured the state to take action. Assisting Mitchell were high school teacher Barry Bradford and a team of three students from Illinois. What, what? In 1999, Mississippi Attorney General Michael Moore announced that the state would reopen the case. At his request, the FBI turned over more than 40,000 pages related to the initial investigation. In January 2005, a grand jury charged Edgar Ray Killen with murder. Although several of the other conspirators were still alive at the time, the grand jury did not find sufficient evidence to invite any, indict anyone else. Killen's trial was scheduled for April 18, 2005. It was deferred after the 80-year-old Killen broke both his legs while chopping lumber at his rural home in Neshoba County. The trial began on June 13, 2005, while Kill- with Killen attending in a wheelchair. The trial drew national news coverage. Members of the victim's families were present at the trial, some as witnesses and some as observers. Ultimately, the jury found insufficient evidence for a murder conviction, but did find Killen guilty of the lesser charge of manslaughter on June 21, 2005, 41 years to the day after his crime. The jury, consisting of nine white jurors and three black jurors, rejected the charges of murder. They found him guilty of recruiting the mob that carried out the killings. He was sentenced on June 23, 2005 by Circuit um, Judge Marcus Gordon to the maximum sentence of 60 years in prison, 20 years for each count of manslaughter to be served consecutively. He would have been eligible for parole after serving at least 20 years. At the sentencing, Gordon stated that each life lost was valuable, and he said that the law made no distinction of age of the crime and that the maximum sentence should be imposed regardless of Killen's age. On August 12th, Killen was released from prison on a $600,000 appeal bond. He claimed that he could um, no longer use his right hand, using his left hand to place his right one on the Bible during the swearing-in, and that he was permanently confined to his wheelchair. Gordon said he was convinced by the testimony that Killen was neither a flight risk nor a danger to the community. On September 3rd of that year, the Clarion Ledger reported that a deputy sheriff saw Killen walking around with no problem. At the hearing on September 9th, Several other deputies testified to seeing Killen driving to various locations. One deputy said that Killen shook hands with him using his right hand. Gordon um, revoked his bond and ordered Killen back to prison, saying that he believed Killen had committed a fraud against the court. On March 29, 2006, Killen was removed from his prison cell and moved to into City of Jackson Hospital to be treated for complications from severe um, from the severe leg injury he sustained in 2005 logging incident at his home. On August 12, 2007, the Supreme Court of Mississippi affirmed Killen's conviction by a vote of eight to nothing. One judge not participating. He had a cellmate by the name of James Hart Stern. He was a black preacher from California. Shared a prison um, with him. The prison cell with him from August 2010 to November of 2011. While the former was um, serving time for wire fraud, during that time, Killen and Stern forged a close relationship. Killen um, handwrote dozens of letters to Stern um, outlining his views on race as well as confessing to other crimes. I'm pretty sure he's responsible for a lot of the disappearances oh, sure. that they found in the swamp. 
In addition to the letters, the former leader of the KKK signed over power of attorney and his land in Mississippi to his cellmate. Now, there's lots what? of there's lots of debate about whether this is forged or whatever, but Stern detailed in his experience in a 2017 book called Killing in the KKK, co-authored by North Carolina author Autumn K. Robinson. Using his power of attorney, Stern disbanded Killen's incarnation of the KKK on January 5th of 2016. Now, on January 12th, 2018, it was announced that he had died at the age of 92 at the Mississippi State Penitentiary in, there in Mississippi. Too bad he couldn't die from being shanked by a rusty right. blade. I know. How did no one kill him in prison? Oh, it, I'm it's sure unbelievable. He, I'm sure he's protected by the white, you know, by the Aryan Probably. Brotherhood. Voter registration, so basically was the Freedom Summer a success? Voter registration in Mississippi was not greatly impacted by the Freedom Summer. While 17,000 black Mississippians attempted to register to vote that summer, only 1,200 were successful. The Mississippi Project did establish more than 40 Freedom Schools, serving a combined 3,000 students. The Freedom Summer also raised awareness for the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, about which Dr. King said, If you value your party, if you value your nation, if you value your democratic government, you have no alternative but to recognize with full voice and vote the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. But at the August 1964 Democratic National Convention held in Atlantic City, New Jersey, MFDP delegates were refused seats, dealing another blow to organizers who had risked their lives to make change. The national attention the Freedom Summer gained for the civil rights movement helped convinced President Lyndon B. Johnson and Congress to pass the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which ended segregation in public places, banned employment discrimination of on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin, and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So differences seen today. While activists say they were not able to register as many black voters as they wanted that summer, the movement nevertheless made a difference. Today, Mississippi has more black elected officials than any other state. In 1970, the state had 95 black elected officials, according to the Joint Center. In 2004, it had 950. In 1968, voter registration among blacks had jumped 60% from 5.8% in 1960. And the Joint Center said in 2012, about 90% of blacks in Mississippi were registered to vote, according to census data. That's amazing. It is. After the violence of the Freedom Summer, um, divisions within the civil rights movement grew between those who continued to believe in nonviolence and those who um, began to doubt whether equality could be reached through peaceful means. After 1964, more militant factions would rise and a struggle for equality and continue. You know, Black Panthers and other ones. Which I feel like people, like, when I was growing up, I mean, I feel like I always heard the narrative that the Black Panthers were this evil, like, awful, right. insane organization. Right. And as I've gotten older and I've read stories, and it's like, right. no, right. they just weren't going to put up with any more no. shit. They happen to be black in white society was like hell no like even i remember like what was it like a few years ago when beyonce had like the halftime show right and she kind of like a black panther thing right and i remember people talking shit on it and i'm like why are we acting like these are bad people right the black panthers there was a militant faction of it and the u.s government there's several well-documented series i mean about i agree it. that some of them were they're they're the U.S. government made a very cons- concentrated effort to destroy the Black Panther movement. I mean, there's the early 70s, there's a well-known case in Chicago where they went in. I mean, oh, yeah. But you know, it was like, 
you know, Black Panther Party started in Oakland. Woohoo. <laughs> if you haven't figured, I am a diehard Raiders fan, so I have a lot of. Oh, now they're in Vegas, but I have a lot of affection for Oakland. I really do. I never, you know, I never felt danger, you know, danger Our in airport Oakland. shit, but, but. whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I like the Oakland A's too. But anyways, they started in Oakland. I mean, they did things for the black community. They did their own, like, educational programs, soup kitchens, everything. Right. Like, they did a lot of good. The result of this, like, was the passing that finally pushed across the finish line in the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act in 1965. It's just unfortunate to bring some of these people to justice took decades. 40 years. Like, it just, I mean, it was a reflection of society in Mississippi, in the White mm-hmm. South. Do you think that has totally disappeared as naive? Um, it's not as prevalent. I don't think it's as blatant as it used to be. But you got to remember, those generations, those people's kids continue to harbor those. Right. You know, Granted, there's some of them may become more enlightened or aren't like that. But unfortunately, it took a lot of deaths, a lot of African Americans throughout the South, and like like we mentioned earlier, you know, they found all those missing African Americans in the swamp. Found what eight of them? Right. This is just one small area of Mississippi. Yeah, and again, like, would we be talking? Like, would we know all of these details if two white guys weren't murdered no. along with Cheney? Yeah. Like, probably not. Like, would people have been convicted for it? Probably not. So Mississippi always touching them until it, it took a long, I mean, just here recently, they finally got rid of the battle flag, the Confederate battle flag in Northern Virginia off their state flag. And that finally happened About last time. year. Old Miss for the longest time flew the stars and bars. They fly out their stadium and for football, they finally got pressured by NCAA. Like they get rid of that, right. but it took well, and I also, decades. and I love that people's like defense for the Confederate flag is like, it's just our heritage. I'm like, the Confederacy was a thing for like four years. Right. That is not your fucking heritage. Well, and you know, the United States is unique in the way that, and like, if you are defending something that the KKK used as one of their, you know, like symbols, right. then like rethink it. You're doing something wrong. U.S. history is interesting in this fact. You look at, okay, we had a civil war. But in our Civil War, after the surrender of the South, the Confederate States of America, the United States at the time, which was the Northern States, the Union, really went out of their way, the panhandle, to make the South still feel good about themselves in some ways. You look at a lot of the Army bases down through the South. They're named after Confederate generals. You know, they tolerated the South. They tolerated this continued this continue association with the Confederacy. And granted, they made these states pass certain you know, constitutional amendments, like 14th Amendment and stuff, before they right. got readmitted. But still, I mean, they were the losers. They should have never had. <laughs> they were the loser. I'm sorry. You lose <laughs> You lose the war. You lose the war. You shouldn't. We shouldn't be allowing you to go ahead and celebrate Confederate generals at bases no. and other shit like that. And have statues and bullshit. Right. So, no. but the U.S. is unique in that way. Any other country, the losing side of the Civil War? No. No. <laughs> I mean, also, like, just, I mean, obviously it's not on the same scale, but I'm like, right. look at Germany. Right. There aren't freaking, like, it's illegal to wear or, like, you know, right. have a swastika. Right. Like, illegal. But I think they're a little bit more over the top, but. But, then, but I know, but you your know concept. what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, it was very much like this was a awful black period of our right. history and yep. like we're not going to glamorize it right do you know what i mean yeah so i have this little fact here on a lighter note 
On a lighter note, the average IQ in America is 100.34. So 100 is usually kind of like the average. The average there. You know, you always joke around, you know, if you got below 100, you're, you know, we used to joke as a kid. So I like, know, oh, you're I, stupid. We looked at like Illinois was like 99. I was right. like, ooh, a little below, guys. So I'm going through this, and the, high, the highest IQ state is Massachusetts at 104.3, followed by New Hampshire at 104.2. Now we start kind of looking through here. I live in Kansas, and Kansas is one hundred two point eight. So Ooh, way to go! Now Missouri is at one hundred one. Dang it! <laughs> Illinois is like sixty. No, it's not. <laughs> I'm just kidding, Illinois listeners. I mean, our schools aren't like the best, but <laughs> right now, some of the people in Illinois are like, "I wish that asshole would come here and visit." Listen, <laughs> once again, I'm very happy about, like, I, you know, I love my hometown. I was just there a couple of weekends ago, and JD right. was like, because, like, there are parts that, like, aren't great. And he was right. like, this shithole. I was like, this is not a shithole. <laughs> I was like, I love Matt, too. <laughs> like, I love coming back to visit. I love being <laughs> I love being able to see like all like I go to like my niece and nephew's soccer game, and it's like a right. family reunion. It was freaking awesome. Okay. <laughs> My hometown's a shithole. Not all of us are as proud. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Al Bundy and Polkai. No. <sighs> so, drum roll, please. Can you guess who has the lowest IQ? Average IQ in the United States? Mississippi. Oh! At 94.2. Wow. They're rolling around in helmets looking for their baseball, drooling themselves. Wow. There isn't a long... 94.2? Bu- yeah, there isn't that a That lo- means like they have a lot that are like 70. Oh yeah, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like oh yeah, because it's a median. Yeah, it's average. Yeah, not being legally defined as retarded. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's probably not politically correct. But, yeah, but because I was like, I just like immediately thought like yeah. Gary Ridgway right. had like a seventy-two IQ right. or something. Like, yeah. ooh, there's a y'all. There's a lot of short buses in that state. Oh, they probably put them on normal buses to make them all feel okay. Well, there's so many of them; they have to use a normal <laughs> bus. <laughs> Sorry, Mississippi. I'm sure there are some really great parts. I've never been. Not well, actually, much. that's not true. I went to Jackson once, I, I think. I've been there for work to different various spots. Gulfport, Jackson, Hattiesburg. I've been to Meridian. So, yeah. You stay along the interstates, you're fine. You go off the interstates too much, you'll fucking hear, <laughs> you hear banjos playing and fucking. Get out. Yeah, you'll see some guy in a fucking white caddy and a big white suit called Boss Hog rolling oh, around. Oh, boy. <laughs> I'm like, I'm sure we have a lot of listeners from Mississippi. But. Yeah, we won't now. They'll be like, fuck those people. But anyway, so that wraps up this episode here. So we appreciate taking a listen. Remember, mental health is very important. Reach out to someone if you need help. doesn't matter who's playing hotlines out there. Your work can provide um, different yeah, avenues. Yeah, you can literally you can like FaceTime a therapist now. Yep. And also be sure to rate, review, subscribe. I know you can't really do that on Spotify, but if you're listening on like Apple or Google, you can like rate, review, and do all the things. It really helps us out. Yes, it does. And we appreciate taking the listen. And for those people in Mississippi who endorse this type of ignorant (laughs) behavior and all those across the United (laughs) States, you know who you are. Go ahead and take Take the portion like they used to take in ancient Greece. Talking to them, all they're doing is taking a drink to take to go to sleep.
Have a good day.